Now, I have told this story before for you longtime harvest folks, so bear with me. I was maybe 10 years old when uh, one day, very much out of the blue, I got it in my mind that I wanted to steal something just to know how it felt. And so not like stealing, you know, from, from something from my sister's bedroom. I wanted to shoplift from a retail establishment. That's what I wanted to do. And so I got on my bike one day and I rode out to the edge of our neighborhood where we had a little strip mall. And in the middle of that place was, was a sporting goods store called the Winner's Circle. No longer in business, probably because of the shoplifting. <laughs> well, when I, so I go into the Winner's Circle and I find a little aisle where no one else is shopping and no, there's no employees, I'm out of sight, and I begin to look for something to take. And then I found it, a shoelace a little black shoelace, not even a pair, just one shoelace. Something small enough that I could fit in my pocket that nobody would miss, and so I put it in my pocket. I very nonchalantly walked out the front door, got on my bicycle, and pedaled home. As fast as my little legs would carry me, I went home. And y'all, I'll be honest, it was exhilarating for a minute. The problem is I got home, I pulled into the garage, and the adrenaline began to wear off. And then, in a moment, I was totally consumed with guilt. Y'all, I hated what I had done. I knew it was wrong when I did it, but only now in the aftermath did I begin to feel the crushing weight of shame. It was, I think at that time, it had to have been the worst feeling I ever had in my life. And, and, and coupled with that was a lot of fear. You know, I wasn't about to confess what I'd done. I wasn't going to take it back and try to return it. And so the only option I had in that moment there in my garage, I took that little shoelace out of my pocket and with tears running down my cheeks I threw it in the bottom of the garbage can and put the lid on the top y'all I was I was cut to the heart with guilt but in my little 10 year old mind and heart I had nowhere to take my guilt I had nothing to do with it except to just live in the shame of what I had done it still bothers me can you tell incidentally that was the day I swore off a life of petty crime and decided to become a pastor <laughs> Not really. Not really. You better believe I didn't steal anything from the winner's circle or anywhere else again, though, after the outcome, after the shame that just drove me into the ground. And here's my point, y'all. All of us know, regardless of the circumstances, all of us know what real guilt and shame feel like because we're all real sinners. And we all have ways of coping with our guilt. We may try to, uh, to suppress it, to put it at the bottom of the garbage and forget about it. We may excuse it away. We may blame somebody else for our decisions. Most often what we do is we try to atone for our guilt by trying very hard to be good, to make up for the bad things that we've done. But y'all, here's the truth about guilt. Guilt, no matter what we do, it sticks. You can't get rid of it. It's like Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare. You know, she, she's constantly washing her hands, trying to get rid of the figurative spot, the stain of guilt on her hands, but no matter how much she washes and washes, it never goes away. Y'all, the reason for that is guilt is not just a feeling that we carry. Guilt is a real debt that we stand before a holy God as sinners. It's real guilt. It's not just in my heart or in my mind. Well, here today in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see a great crowd of people, a couple of thousand people all at once, coming to terms with their own guilt and shame. They are, the scripture says, pierced to the heart over it. 
And so they cry out in response, what shall we do? And that's the question not just for them, but also for us in our guilt. What shall we do? Is there any hope for those who stand guilty? Well, the answer comes from the Apostle Peter. And since we're picking up here in the middle of of Acts chapter 2, we studied the first half of this um, chapter last week. But let me just give you a quick recap here of Peter's sermon to this point. God has poured out the Holy Spirit upon the disciples of Jesus, just as he promised he would. And the outcome is a public miracle that all of the disciples are speaking the gospel in various languages so that everybody in this great crowd of people, everybody is hearing the gospel spoken in their own native tongue. Then Peter stands up to explain this to the crowd. What's happening here, they ask. Peter gives them the answer. He says, this is the fulfillment of God's great promise to send out, to pour out His Spirit upon all mankind so that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But one thing becomes very clear as we enter into today's Scripture, that the Lord does not pour His Spirit out at random. God is pouring out His Spirit in connection with, in response to, the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so to this point, what we saw last week, Peter doesn't mention Jesus until verse 22. But now Jesus takes center stage, as He should. Look at what Peter says now to the crowd, these Jewish men and women, next. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, Peter says, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, I want us to see here in this opening paragraph the big, bold, very clear lines of evidence that Peter is drawing out here for the crowd. The first thing he says to them is, you all know of Jesus. Elsewhere in the Scripture, we're told that what Jesus did in His life and ministry, He didn't do in a corner. It was public knowledge. Everybody in this crowd would have had first or at least second-hand information about Jesus. Peter specifically mentions Jesus' life and ministry and His miracles, His signs and His wonders. And Peter wants there to be no confusion, no controversy here. This man, Jesus, was attested to you by God. And it was God who worked the signs and wonders and miracles through him. That is to say, Jesus was not just an extraordinary man. He was certified as God's man. That he came from God, just as he said, the proof is clear. God has attested to him. And what's even more, Peter says, it was God who predetermined the death of Jesus. And this would have been a sticking point here. Nobody in the crowd probably would have disputed that Jesus was a great teacher, a prophet perhaps, a miracle worker. Those things were evident. But the assumption among the Jews was this. Any so-called Messiah 
who dies is therefore a false teacher, a false messiah. The fact that Jesus Christ died at the hands of the Romans on the cross, that was clear evidence that Jesus was a pretender, just a blip on the radar, one of many pretender messiahs who had come before him and would come after him. But Peter says, no, even the death of Jesus was a predetermined divine plan. Jesus was handed over, not an accident, not a tragedy, not a failure, but a divine intention, the death of Christ. And yet, you see what he says in verse 23? You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So often in the scripture we see things like this. Two truths held up without contradiction at the same time. Peter says God predetermined and planned the death of his son. We'll find out why in a minute. And at the same time, you did it, Peter says. You're responsible for it. Now, y'all think about how shocking this accusation would have been. Peter is right now speaking to a couple of thousand people. A great crowd has come to, to witness this miracle and ask what it is giving Peter a captive audience, the biggest crowd he's ever spoken to, surely. Now think about it. Of all these thousands of people who are gathered here listening in, not all of them could have possibly been present at the trial of Jesus or his crucifixion. And yet Peter says to them collectively, corporately, you rejected him. You handed him over. You voted him down. You nailed him to the cross. You all share the guilt of his death. Now, when we read things like this in our modern mindset, we're, we're y'all, we're modern American people, okay? We have a highly individualistic sense of, of our personality and our life and the world that I'm only responsible for me. I'm, all, I'm not responsible for you. I'm not responsible for my parents. I'm responsible for me, and that's the end. That's where the buck stops. And so we read a statement like this, and it might cause us at least pause, if not outrage. Wait a minute. How could these people, some of them weren't even there, and Peter lays the guilt at their feet? See, statements like this may not register with us, but y'all, in other cultures, and certainly in ancient Israel, this idea of collective guilt was not uncommon at all. When we read through the Old Testament, if you're with us right now in the reading plan, we're in Exodus, we're about to get to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, so often Israel is described as bearing guilt collectively as a nation. They're guilty. They're sinners. They're stiff-necked. They also experience blessing collectively. Now, not everybody in Israel necessarily deserved blessing, but they still got it as part of the nation. And not everybody always individually committed a certain kind of sin, and yet they all collectively shared in the judgment of sin. We may not like that, that vicarious guilt. We might say, well, I wasn't there. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the scripture we're reading where Jesus, you know, you nailed him to the cross. Wait a minute, I wasn't there. I had nothing to do. I didn't vote him down. How could I be guilty? Y'all, I want you to think about the song we just sang. It was my sin that held him there. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. D does that register when, when we sing? Like, do we believe that? That's, that's vicarious guilt. I wasn't there. Clearly, I wasn't born yet. How could, I, how could I call out among the scoffers at Jesus' trial and crucifixion? But y'all, I just want, I want to press us on this. 
uh, it's never my desire to tie every single thing up in a nice little easy bow, okay? I just want to leave us with this. We don't like vicarious guilt. If I wasn't there, then it's not my problem. I can't be held accountable. But Peter had no issue with it in putting the guilt where it belonged upon all of Israel that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But I want you to think about this. I don't like vicarious guilt, but how did I get saved? How did any of us get saved? Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. You weren't born yet. You had not committed sin yet. How could you? And yet Jesus is our vicarious Savior. He died for our sins before yet there was one to die for. Once and for all, Jesus doesn't have to go back to the cross continually for new sins as they're committed by God's divine power Jesus suffered for us back when, and we are saved, although we were never there to receive it. We may receive it now. Y'all, there's a mystery in that that's wonderful. And it's hard if I say I don't, I'm not guilty. I can't be guilty for what happened on the cross, right? But in that case, the flip side of that coin is, can I receive the vicarious grace that was paid for on the cross? Just something, something to think about over lunch. Peter says, you nailed him to the cross, all right? And if he had stopped there, we'd be in big trouble, wouldn't we? But he doesn't stop there. Jesus didn't stay dead. And therefore, perhaps the guilty still have hope. Look at verse 24 again. Peter says, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Uh, in the Psalms, several times in the Psalms, uh, David makes mention of what he calls the cords of death. And the image there is that when a person dies, they are wrapped up, tied up with ropes, with cords, that take you down into Sheol, the abode of the dead, the idea being you're wrapped up tight, there's no coming back. You're imprisoned now, as it were, and you can't return. Um, that's a terrifying image, isn't it? And yet here we are, in Jesus' case, Peter says the cords of death were broken on Easter morning. They were no match for God's power, the grave could not hold him. Death had no power over him. Peter says, he is risen. Now, Peter's going to do something in the face of this crowd that's really brilliant. He's going to tie every thread together here as a way of showing them what would be for the crowd definitive proof of all these great claims he's making. Remember, the crowd, they weren't all there at the crucifixion. They certainly weren't all there for the resurrection. And yet Peter is going to show them why it's so, right? He's going to tie all the threads together. We have the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. That's the 120 disciples. We have the witness of the Holy Spirit through the miracle of the languages that they've all witnessed. Peter says we have the witness of God himself who has attested to his son, Jesus Christ, through his miracles. And lastly, Peter says we have the witness of the Scripture through King David. Now I'm going to read a prolonged part of this chapter here for us. I hope it kind of preaches itself. Let's, let's lock in together, beginning in verse 25. Peter says, For David says of him, that is Jesus, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, 
because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now this is Peter again. He says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, Peter says, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, there's a lot going on right there, but let me give you the, the best nutshell version of this I can. This is what Peter is saying. God, years and years ago, God promised David. We all know David. King David. He promised David a descendant who would sit on David's throne forever. A ruler whose rule would never end. A Messiah, a deliverer, the true king. And so David, through the Spirit, wrote of a holy one who would die and yet not decay. He would not be abandoned to the abode of the dead, but instead he would live. David spoke of his descendant, this promised one, he spoke of him as Lord, the Lord who sits at the right hand of God. Now Peter says to the crowd, surely David is not talking about himself. We all know that. Well, who's he talking about? By the Holy Spirit, David is looking ahead to someone who would be both Lord and Messiah, both Lord and Savior, that is Jesus, whom you crucified, but God raised. And so here, this is all coming to a head right now as Peter unloads one punch after another, one witness after another, the witness of the Scripture, King David, the witness of the Spirit and the miracle of the tongues, the witnesses who saw the resurrection and are giving testimony of it, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, every single thing points to one thing, one final reality, that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, the one who you crucified. So how are the people going to respond? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They were pierced to the heart, cut down deep, that's a feeling I trust that we all know when we've fallen short, when we've rebelled, when we've chosen to do something we knew was wrong and perhaps it only came after the doing like it was in my case 
Whatever it is, we know what it is to be pierced to the heart. All of us do. These people are struck dead where they stand. And it's not hard to see why. If what Peter's saying is true, if this Jesus really is Lord and Christ, and we crucified Him, we rejected Him, then what possible hope could there be for us? Tell us what we must do. Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So here we are, these people, who all at once are are pierced with grief, consumed with guilt. The truth concerning Jesus has been laid out bare for them and they finally see it for themselves. What is there for them to do? I mean, that's the million-dollar question here. What shall we do? Is there any hope for us? And y'all, that same question belongs to you and me. Every single person who walks the face of this earth, if all have sinned and stand guilty before God, real guilt, not what my feelings tell me merely, but a real guilt accounted against me, What shall I do? What hope is there? Well, in these last three verses we just read, Peter lays it all out for us, crystal clear. We see two things I want to show you here. We see a call for an urgent response, coupled with a promise of amazing grace. Urgent response and amazing grace. Y'all, it's not hard to see the immediacy in Peter's words, beginning in verse 38. Peter did not say, y'all go home and you think about what you've done and come back next week and we'll wrap it up. No. He says, right here, right now, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And Luke tells us he kept on exhorting them more and more. He said, be saved from this perverse generation. Now, I want you to know, y'all, this doesn't mean that salvation must always happen with great speed and urgency. Uh, A lot of us share this story. This is my story. That uh, it felt for me like a process. I heard the gospel many times as a young person. I considered the words of Scripture. I began to read the Bible for myself. One day, seemingly out of the blue, one day it came to fruition. I trusted in Jesus. That may be your story. That might be the, the, the kind of the journey that you're on right now. It doesn't necessarily happen at the speed of light in an urgent kind of way. I don't want us to make that mistake of thinking that salvation can only happen in some dramatic, immediate kind of sense. Here's what I think this means, though. The urgency, the immediacy of Peter's words. What he's saying is, y'all, salvation is available right now. Right now. Here today, as you stand here, cut to the heart, there is somewhere for you to turn. There is something for you to do. The point is that God, listen, God on His part does not give us a process by which we may be saved. Step one, step two, step three. 
God does not give you a checklist. God does not give you an improvement plan. And if you show forth enough effort, you make yourself eligible. That's not how salvation works. No, for anyone who experiences, like these people, a piercing of the heart, a conviction of sin, the crushing weight of guilt and shame, the Lord Jesus invites you right where you are, right now, Jesus says, come to me. There is no prerequisite to this. There's no cleaning yourself up first. Right now, just as you are, you may come. In the book of Hebrews, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today. Now, what does it mean to come to him then? If we can come right here and now, what does that mean? Well, Peter tells us in verse 38, you see that first word? He says, repent. Repent, which means to turn, to change your mind. And y'all, repentance, very basically, kids, I hope y'all can understand what I'm saying here. This is not spiritual, high-up kind of language. This is something that we can all get. Repentance means, very basically, I'm going one direction. And I recognize, perhaps for the first time, that my direction, my life, the things I love, the things I worship, the things I'm doing, only lead me to destruction. And when I recognize my sin, when I recognize Jesus, I turn away from what I've been doing, from what I've been thinking, how I've been living. I turn instead to Him. And y'all, that is an act of faith. We're turning away from whatever we love and worship most, and instead we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. And so repentance involves a conviction of guilt, a recognition of sin, I recognize that I'm guilty before God. But it's more, y'all listen, it's more, repentance is more than just turning away from the bad stuff. And so often in my life, I've made this mistake, a critical mistake, even if it's noble-minded. I recognize what I'm doing, I feel bad about it, I know it's wrong, and so I'm going to try very, very hard to be better. That's the most natural impulse in the world, but that is not Repentance. In that case, we've, we've started with the right thing, but we haven't turned to the right thing. All we've done in the end is turn inward to self-improvement, to self-atonement for what I've done. Y'all, it's not enough to feel bad about your sin and try harder. That's not repentance. This is what we do. When we recognize our need to be different, our sin, our guilt, our shame, we turn to Jesus. And y'all, part of the reason for this is, what I said earlier, the spot of guilt can't be removed. If you're guilty before God, God must act on your behalf to remove it. You can't. But when we turn to Jesus Christ, what do we find? The forgiveness of all our sins and the cleansing of all unrighteousness. Only Jesus can remove the stain and make you clean. That's why repentance is never finished with feeling guilty and trying harder. No, turn to Jesus. That's what Peter's telling them. And so with repentance, Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, let me make a little point of clarification here. We're not seeing baptism presented here as a saving activity in itself. I know that's how it reads, but we have to be careful. As we walk through Acts, it will become more obvious that faith in Jesus precedes baptism. Baptism is not a saving act in itself. 
But we're meant to see how closely linked together they are. And we'll see that as we walk through Acts. Peter says, for each of you who repent, meaning you take your guilt and you bring it to Christ, you turn to Jesus, be baptized in His name for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the public demonstration of your faith, showing forth that you have been united with Jesus. You are identifying with Jesus. Y'all, in the New Testament, there was no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. They got baptized, oftentimes the same day. That doesn't, that's not, a, that's not a, a prescription for how every church has to do it. We don't necessarily do it that way. But we're not meant to see these things as far separated out apart. Those who repent and turn to Christ, he says, be baptized as showing forth identity in Christ. He is your Lord and Savior. And baptism is that which represents it both to God and to one another. Y'all, what's happening right here in this moment, it's the most radical turn imaginable, I think. That five minutes ago, as Peter addresses the crowd, these people are sharing in the guilt of Jesus' crucifixion, completely crushed under the weight of their sin. And now, here we are a few minutes later, these people are by faith sharing in the life of His resurrection. It's a complete 180 now that they're experiencing. But see, that's what the gospel is. I hope we see why there would be an urgent call for repentance and baptism. Don't let the piercing of the heart pass you by. You feel the conviction of your sin. Today you hear the Lord's voice. Don't harden your hearts. Repent. But see, the promise is amazing grace. It's not try harder. It's not make up for your sins. The promise is this, that when you trust Jesus, you become united with Him. Meaning, everybody who trusts in Christ, the Scripture says, we are now alive to God. That's one of the great pictures of baptism. When we go under the water, we are buried with Christ. Our old self, our sin is put to death, put away in Christ. And then we are raised up out of the water. Romans 6 says, raised to walk in newness of life. We experience a kind of resurrection because Jesus makes us new. And so when you're united with Christ, you're now alive, no longer dead. You're, you're forgiven, no longer guilty. And Peter says you receive the Holy Spirit. That which you've seen poured out, you receive for yourself. Y'all, the great promise of God's indwelling presence, His very Spirit, is given to all who call upon the name of the Savior. That's why we call it amazing grace. So you know, let's, let's think about 10-year-old Kyle, or how, how about 41-year-old Kyle for that matter? What happens when a person like me who has real guilt, real guilt for real sin, what happens when we turn to Jesus? We get the exact opposite of what we deserve or expect. We get forgiveness of sin rather than condemnation. We get life, not death. We get God's acceptance, not His rejection. We get God's presence, not His absence and turning His back away. And y'all, if God's grace was so freely and abundantly and urgently poured out on these people in Acts chapter 2, why would we think that we would be any different? The same grace that saves them saves us also. The vicarious salvation purchased on the cross by Jesus Christ 
applies in all times and all places to all who call upon his name in faith. That should give you hope perhaps in this room for people you pray for, people who are far from God. There's hope for them. Remember what Peter says, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. What a picture. God will call to himself those who receive the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ. We are now his. We belong to him. This is a grace that reaches far and wide, generation to generation. It's ours if we receive it. So what happens next? Verse 41, last verse we're going to see this morning. So then, Luke tells us, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people. 3,000 souls went from death to life that day. The guilt of their sin forgiven because the grace of Jesus got the last word for them. And I want you to know the grace of, of God will always get the last word for those who turn to Jesus Christ. Y'all, why is that? The real guilt that we share as sinners must be removed. And it cannot happen from within. It cannot happen by hand-washing, by atoning. It, it can only happen at the cross. Y'all, at the cross, we recognize what Jesus has done, and we're closed with this. At the cross, Jesus himself, Peter says, bore our sins in his body. The just for the unjust, the godly for the ungodly. He took our sin and our shame into his own heart. Recognize this. Every sin you've ever committed, even the stuff that makes your stomach turn to think about, or if anybody ever found out, you would be totally discredited. We all have stuff that we hope will never get to the light of day. We know what we really are. Jesus died for every last one of it. All of it. As if he had committed it himself. That's what it is for him to bear your sin. It didn't just sit atop his shoulders. He took it into himself. It was accounted to him as if he had committed it. So that when Jesus died on the cross, your sin died along with him, removed from you once and for all and forever. That is the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ died to provide for us. But y'all, it's a gift that has to be received. And so if you know what it is to be pierced to the heart, if you recognize real guilt, then I hope the words of Peter will echo in our ears and our hearts this morning. Repent. Turn away from yourself, away from your sin. Turn to Jesus, the only one who can forgive and the one who lavishly delights to forgive. Be baptized in his name. For some of us, that's the very next step. Receive and embrace the total forgiveness of all our sin. Receive and delight in the gift of God's indwelling spirit. All of these things are ours by faith in the Lord Jesus. Y'all, we're going to pray. And as we pray and as we sing, I want to invite you this morning. It may be that you're here right now 
reckoning with your own heart, your own life, your own guilt. And, and as, as Hebrews says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Turn to Him. I want to give you that opportunity to, to respond, to let us know that you need prayer, that you'd like to talk about it. Aaron and Evan are going to be at the back of the room as we stand and sing, as we pray. If you'd like to talk about what this means to be saved, if you'd like to take that step of turning to Jesus um, and, and just want us to pray with you and, and celebrate with you, um, then that, that's our delight today and our desire. We want that opportunity. If you want to find me after the service, whatever it takes, let's walk together in all that God has provided for us that we might receive His grace afresh or perhaps even for the first time. Let's pray that we would not harden our hearts, but that God's free grace would be ours in abundance. Father, we know this morning, and I pray we're honest enough with ourselves to know we are guilty. And that apart, Lord, from your intervention, apart from your love poured out in your Son, Jesus, we will remain guilty. The stain will never go away. And I pray, Lord, that rather than us living in despair at the thought, that we would recognize our hope, Father, that Jesus is alive. And because He's alive, there is hope for the guilty. Because, Lord, You have, have determined that Jesus' death was purposeful, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins. There's hope for us. We're not lost to despair and condemnation. I pray, Father, that we would joyfully turn this morning to Jesus Christ. Even if we grieve and lament our sin, Father, that we would recognize here and now, with urgency here and now, Lord, you delight to take it all away, to bear our sins away, so that as the Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far, God, have you removed our transgressions from us. That could happen right now for anyone who turns in faith to Jesus Christ, who repents and receives the forgiveness of sin. Lord, this I pray that we would not um, take for granted the amazing grace that Jesus Christ has taken our sin upon his, Himself, Lord, that He was punished for what I've done so that I might receive what He has done so that I might be righteous in Your sight, Father. I pray we never get over that wonderful good news. May we respond in a manner worthy of the grace we've been given as we stand and sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.